Good morning again. My title for you today is Personal Fellowship, Loving People Face-to-Face. We're currently going through 2nd and 3rd John, a series that we have titled Standing for the Truth. In particular, today our title is Personal Fellowship, Loving People Face-to-Face. And as the title might suggest, there isn't a whole lot of theological application today. There isn't a whole lot of doctrinal lessons found in these small verses tucked at the end of 2 John, verses 12 and 13, but it gives us an opportunity, you and I, to look at some of the practical implications that our faith has for us in regards to our lives as Christians and to our lives as Christians who are a part of a Christian community. might be a surprise for you to hear, but the Bible has expectations of you and me. And not only expectations of us in regards to how we live our lives, but also expectations of how we carry on as Christians who are members of a local congregation. We have, in the United States of America, in the Christian community of our country, a sort of ebb and flow within Christianity that suggests to some people they belong to a church when they've only attended there once or twice. That's my pastor, and that's my church, but they've only been twice in the last two years. And the reality of the matter is, is there's an expectation of God when it comes to the Bible of Christians and their church involvement, commitment, The Bible's word for that is covenant. We use the word membership. To be a part of a local community means to be a special contributor to a special body. That wouldn't be the same without you. So what we're looking at today are two simple points, the importance of personal interaction and secondly, the importance of fellowship. I want to take us through these points one by one, in particular verses 12 and 13. And as I said, I don't have a lot of doctrinal stuff for you, but I think the things that I do have for you are going to be relevant to your life personally. So let's begin this morning with our first point, which is found in verse 12. The importance of personal interaction. This is the first thing that I'd like for you to see, the personal interaction. Excuse me. Read verse 12 with your eyes as I read aloud. This is what it says. Though I have much to write to you, John says, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face. So that our joy, whose joy? Our joy may be complete. A couple of things that I want you to note here, and that begins with this. First of all, Christianity is a literate faith. Christianity is a literate faith. Throughout history, Christians have been called people of the book. People of the book. As a result, wherever Christianity goes, there's a push for education and a push for literacy. Historically, if you go back, this is verifiable. Jesus, in the Bible, is called the Word. God reveals himself to us. How? By the words of the prophets. 
And what we have here, a collection of inspired writings that we call, singularly, the Bible. It's an inspired book, and it is called the Word of God. This is what John says. I'm going to write to you with paper and ink, but there's some things I want to say to you face to face. But before we get to that face-to-face part, I want you to hear what John is saying, namely, that in Christianity, we have a literate faith. We've had a plethora of wonderful authors who have lived throughout history, Christian authors who have contributed wonderful books and wonderful paragraphs to the fact that our faith is a literate faith. I want to share a couple of them with you here. The first is C.S. Lewis. Many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis, and I'm pulling from page 56 of his book, Mere Christianity. This is a very interesting and powerful paragraph. You can read it with your eyes as I read it aloud. C.S. Lewis writes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept Tim's claim to be God. That is the one thing we must never say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great, human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He never intended to. Or how about this paragraph from John Piper's newer book called A Peculiar Glory, which is a book about the Bible itself. Here's a paragraph pulled from page 104 of this book. John Piper writes, as the perfect God-man Battling the temptations of Satan in the wilderness, Jesus uses the written word of God the way we should. He sets us an example. He overcomes his adversaries by the truth and power of God's word. This is amazing because Jesus is God and could have, as he often did, dispatched Satan with one word of his own. But in this case, Jesus is modeling his human reliance on the Father's word. Now, I share those couple of texts with you because they're good paragraphs, and they're good paragraphs about things that should matter to us tremendously, namely Jesus and who he is, and the Bible and its proper use. I want to quote Mark Twain here. And he said, the man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. The man who does not read has no advantage over the man who cannot read. In other words, if you know how to read and you don't, you have no advantage over someone who is illiterate. Let me bring you back to the first point under this heading. 
Christianity is a literate faith. God has revealed himself to us in his word. And so important was this revelation that when Jesus was tempted by Satan, he didn't just ban Satan or dispatch Satan, but he quotes God's word. Church, we are called to be literate Christians. Christians who read, Christians who write, Christians who share the written word of God. Second, Christianity is not only a literate faith, it's also an intimate faith. It's also an intimate faith. Looking again at verse 12, John says, Though I have much to write to you, again, literacy is a part of our faith. Here's the second issue I want you to see. I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk. How? Uh, We're down a little bit today, so you got to be double loud. How? Face to face. Repeatedly, the Bible talks to us about things that we would put under the category of intimacy. Think about it. God loves us in John 3. God holds our hand in Isaiah 41. God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds in Psalm 147. These are beautiful passages that remind us that our our faith in God is a faith that is intimate. It's not aloof, not standoffish. God is intimate with his people. He loves them, he guides them, he cares for them, he heals them. All of these references suggest to us an intimacy in our faith. Church, our faith is an intimate faith. And we see that intimacy play out on the pages of Scripture and in the spaces of fellowship. I want to share with you a few Scriptures that are seen throughout the Bible because throughout Scripture, the people of God are shown to be people who are affectionate people which in South Florida is not that big a deal, right? Here are a couple of verses I wanted to share with you. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 5. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 5, we are told there is a time to embrace. What's another word for embrace? Hug. There is a time to embrace, and there's a time to refrain from embracing, which is to say the people in the Bible were huggers. If they weren't, there would be no need to say, there's a time not to hug, right? Now, if you grew up in a family like mine, hugging is no big deal, right? You hug, full chest, sometimes a leg. <laughs> you know, you really love somebody, you, need to get, you gotta get the full wrap on. And then I know people that I see them and maybe I'm just, you know, it's another guy in the faith or something like, what's up, brother? It's good to see you. And I go to hug him and they give me this hug. You know what I mean? You know this hug. And they're like, and their face is off. I'm not well acquainted with that hug. It has happened a few times, but it's like, ah. That's not how my family hugs. I know that many people in our church do not hug that way either. But hugs are normal in the Bible. Affection and intimacy are normal in the Bible. 
right? Here's another verse that you can see in these scriptures. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 5 is the first one. The second one is Romans chapter 12, verse 10. It's a beautiful verse. Paul says, love one another with brotherly what? Affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. The expectation of God, Jesus, the apostles, when it comes to how Christians do their faith, is an expectation of affection. A Christianity without affection is not a normal Christianity. Here's another scripture I want to share with you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 26. Paul says, and this is an interesting verse when it comes to this topic because he says something here that is important. Greet all the brothers, how? With a holy kiss. There's been more than one occasion when maybe the deacons or I have had to pull somebody aside and go, not appropriate. You need to dial it down a notch, you know? And, and that's our job, isn't it? And, and it's also everyone else's job to know what healthy boundaries in the faith are. There are people who have been raised in environments. There are people who have had experiences in the past. There are people who do not allow or refuse the influence of the Holy Spirit in certain domains in their life. Consequently, when they come to things like affection that is casually experienced in a space of fellowship such as ours, they don't know when is enough. This is so important that when Paul speaks to Timothy, who is a young pastor, he says to Timothy, love the younger women as sisters in Christ, and then he says, with all purity. In other words, women who are my age, women who are younger than me, I'm to love them like they are my sisters, with all purity. Which, I mean, to be inappropriate with one of my sisters, I think I'd rather hit myself with a ball-ping hammer. But some people are not right. Some people have a sin sickness, and they can't live their life with healthy, respectful boundaries when it comes to affection within Christianity. So some people come into a space of fellowship like ours, and they start to experience the affection that we get to enjoy in Christ, and it calls into check some issues that they have. Now, I'm not saying that they're worse than we are. Please understand where I'm coming from. But what I'm saying is the scriptures speak to us as people of faith, with an expectation of affection and intimacy. But the same scriptures talk to us with boundaries. In other words, we're not just to go around kissing anybody, however, whenever we want, but we are to do it, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, in a holy way. And you know what holy means. It means clean. It means pure. It means respectful in this context. So if you come up and you hug me and you kiss me, great. Let me go. You know, hang on me, you know what I mean? Don't make it uncomfortable for me. And I won't do, this, I won't do that to you either. The, the idea is that I have had situations, and I'm sure you have had situations where, you know, a brother and sister in Christ might be a little, a little too intimate. And we just got to call into question boundaries. We've, we have some of the deacons and I, in particular, David Ramsing. I'm sure you remember David Ramsing. He moved with his wife, and they live in Tampa now. We miss them. And, but he was appointed as my sort of guard for a long time. 
before they moved. He stood next to me just to make sure things stayed the way that they were supposed to stay. Not because people are inconsiderate, but because when you put up boundaries, you don't have to worry about inconsideracy. Somebody's going to be inconsiderate. We don't have to worry about that anymore. There's a boundary there to protect them and me. That's the whole point behind greet each other, not just with a kiss, but with a holy kiss. Affection is a part of our faith. You can see from this small assortment of verses that the Bible not only acknowledges affection, there's an expectation on the part of the family of God to show each other love. Love shows itself in action and affection. And affection is often a healing agent. Amen? There are some people who haven't had someone place their hand on their shoulder in a long, long time in a loving way, in a respectful way. There are people who have never had someone say, let's pray together and hold hands with them and pray to the God of heaven in that moment with that intimacy of holding their hand. Now, for some people, this is unusual, but in Christianity, it's normal. I mean, in my family, it's not unusual. When we watch something, like if we're binging on something on Netflix or something else, you know, somebody's got a foot under the leg, and I've got an arm around one of my kids, and that's just how we are, so it's not a big deal. For others, it's a learning process. But this much we have to receive. God loves us with affection. And he wants us to be affectionate with each other as well. In this particular case, in verse 12, John says, there's some things I want to share with you, but I want to do it how? Face to face. I want to be with you when we have this talk. I also think it's important to remember that there are some things that have to be said in person. We have a tendency today to shoot off a text or an email, and you know as well as I do that we can misconstrue a meaning or someone else can misconstrue a meaning because there's a lot of things missing in a text that aren't missing in person. Tone, facial expression, you know, and like when I text like the youth or the kids, it really throws me off because they just ditch all grammar and capitalization. No capitals, no punctuation, no nothing. I go, is this a run-on sentence? Or it is, I'm not sure where I divide it. There are some things, friends, that we have to have the maturity to say to each other face-to-face. There are some things that we need to have the respect that God tells us to have for each other. To say those things face-to-face. Some of those things are, I need to say something to you, and I want you to receive it. And some of those things are, I love you. There are people who come into the fellowship of Christ who do not know how to respond to, I love you, have a great week. Because people haven't told them that they love them for years. They grow up in homes where love is absent. It's not practiced. It's not a norm. I don't know what your home is like, but I hope it's not like that. Because that's not gospel-centered. We see it all the time. 
Even in the instance of the Father to Jesus. When Jesus is baptized, for example, we see God and the Holy Spirit present at the baptism of Jesus. We have acknowledgement. This is my son. We have affection. I love him. And we have affirmation. In him, I am well pleased. If you have people in your life and you aren't practicing that acknowledgement, that affection, and that affirmation, you are not following the example. There are some things that need to be said face-to-face, heart-to-heart, okay? So our second point is this, the importance of fellowship, the importance of fellowship. We looked at the, per, the importance of personal interaction, and we've seen that in verse 12. And now in verse 13, we're going to see the importance of fellowship, Look at verse 13 with your eyes. This is what he says. The children of your elect sister greet you. The children of your elect sister greet you. Or as the gist might be understood, if I were to just paraphrase it to you, the members of your sister church that I'm a part of say hello. That's what John is saying here in verse 13. The church that I'm a part of, in particular, your sister church, those members, they greet you. They say, hello. Christians should have respect, fellowship, and love for one another. And there are at least three reasons for this. First, we have Christ in common. Christ is the foundation and the common denominator for all Christians, A different Christ means a different Christianity, a different Christian foundation. But the same Christ means the same foundation, even if some other secondary issues might be different. And we'll get to that in a moment. But first of all, we should have respect and fellowship and and love for each other because we have Christ in common. Secondly, we have forgiveness in common. Regardless of how great you are, and I know many of you are fantastic, none of you is great enough to stand in God's presence. We do so by virtue of Jesus. We've been forgiven. So we have that in common. When it comes to those of us who stand at the foot of the cross, we're all there by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, by the forgiveness of God. So we have to remember that. We have that, every single Christian in common, that by the grace of God, we are forgiven. None of us has an earned status with God. Third, we have faith in common, which I've already mentioned. Now, I know that we don't hold every single jot and tittle in common. There are denominations, right? Episcopalian, Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, Southern Baptist, which is what we are. There is the Calvary movement. There are non-denominational churches. And even within denominations, there are different factions or sects. For example, in the Presbyterian uh, uh, denomination, there's the PCA and the PCUSA. We like the PCA. We don't like the PCUSA so much. We like the conservative bent of the denominations, not the liberal ones. The Methodists are going through such craziness right now that they're literally about to split their denomination. We are not exempt from these trials. The Southern Baptist Convention is going through challenges of its own. 
While the conservative aspects of it stand up to say, we're not, ex- we're not receiving that, we're not believing this, etc., there are other agents within our convention, and there are other conventions that are Baptists but not Southern Baptists that believe things that we don't. So there are denominations that hold to some secondary issues that we don't necessarily hold to. But the faith is the same. We are all saved by faith. Euclid was a mathematician in Alexandria, Egypt, about 300 years before Jesus was born. He was not only a mathematician, but he was a a specialist in geometry and logic as well. He was a philosopher of all kinds, and he had seven axioms that he held to and taught. One of them was this. Things that are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. Things that are equal to the same thing are equal to each other. Mathematically and logically, this works. But what I'm saying to you today, church, is this. Theologically, it works too. In other words, Christians and churches are equal in the eyes of Christ. Therefore, they are equal to each other. Now, there are clearly differences between churches. There's a church that connects to our backyard, Pinelands Presbyterian, and we have many friends over there, and we know the pastor and so forth, and we pray for their success, and we hope that they reach people with the gospel just as they do the same for us. But the reason we are different denominations is because we don't baptize babies. And we don't baptize babies because we don't see scriptural evidence for it. Now, that doesn't mean that we go, hey, you guys are a bunch of heretics. It's a pretty good argument that they make. We just don't believe that the weight of Scripture supports it. So we are Baptists, which means we are credo-Baptists. When you confess faith in Jesus, we baptize you. They practice what's called pedo-baptism, which is a prefix that comes from child. They baptize children. Now, They don't believe that their baptizing a child saves that child. They believe that that child still needs to come to faith in Jesus. What they're doing is setting out that child since that child is born to a family of believers. So they mark that child, as it were, as a child who has been born into the covenant. We don't hold to that particular teaching, but... That doesn't mean that they teach a different Jesus. That's important for us to mark. But we have a lot of things in common, and those are the things that we have to emphasize. The reason I bring this to your attention, church, is this. While John has been very forthright and unapologetic about false teachers, we read some of those verses earlier when Alex read the script to us, He calls them literally antichrists and tells them in verse 8, watch out for these people and watch yourselves. We also have to remember that we have some brothers and sisters in Christ, amen if you're listening, they don't don't agree with us on every single matter, but they're still our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have to have love and affection for them. This is one thing I want to share with you. It's going to come up here on the screen, one of them. This one decided to stop working. We're going to buy a new projector this week also, by the way, because this one's on loan. We're shopping this week. I don't know if you know this, but I love shopping. (laughs) 
Patty, we got to spend money this week. Yeah, I know. More money. It's just money. Okay. This is something I want to share with you, and I think that this is important. Listen. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, unity. We do not negotiate on the essentials. If you say there is no trinity, we can't be friends. If you say there's a way to be saved other than Jesus, we can't be friends. If you say that the Bible teaches X, Y, Z, something that is contrary to an essential doctrine, we can't be friends theologically. Can't happen. I would go so far as to say, someone says, well, I I believe that you can be saved by Jesus alone. We say, great. Yes, but I believe that the Bible contains the word of God. The Bible is not the word of God. Uh, We can't be friends. How can you come to that conclusion if the Bible is only partly reliable? We don't hold to that text or belief. We don't hold to that belief. So there are essentials, and in the essentials, we don't negotiate. Secondly, in non-essentials, liberty. Do you do the service like this, or do you do the service like that? Do you sing modern songs? Do you sing older traditional songs? Do you sing both? Does your pastor preach expositionally, or does your pastor preach topically? Do you baptize children of believers, or do you not baptize children of believers? These are all things that are secondary in nature. We can give liberty on these things, because the essentials are not negotiable. And then thirdly, in all things, charity, which is the $1.50 word for love. In all things, love. We always do everything we do with love. We teach with love. We speak with love. We serve with love. We worship with love. It doesn't mean that we're soft and gushy and we have no backbone. On the contrary, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love rejoices in the truth. So love doesn't negotiate. But simply because love doesn't negotiate, that doesn't mean that love is weak. That love gets pushed around. Those things don't happen. So in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. All churches that are connected to Christ are connected to each other. So inner church fellowship is biblical and is something that we should be honored to participate in. In our church and in our society, we tend to make everything a competition, don't we? We tend to do a measuring contest when it comes to everything. Is your church bigger than ours? Is your church's campus bigger than ours? Does your church do this or does it do that? But listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. It's a very insightful text. I think it's going to come up on the screen. Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. The apostle Paul says this. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here, Paul says he's in prison, knowing that I'm put in prison for the defense of the gospel. Well, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. 
What then? Only that in every way, listen to what Paul says. He's the apostle and he's like, he's Paul, right? Okay, so listen to what he says here. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. In other words, he's saying, I'm happy that Jesus is being preached even if the motivation for some of the people who are preaching Jesus is that I'm in prison and they're like, Paul's in prison. Let's hurry up and grow our church. (laughs) While Paul's put away, let's make some progress on our church and on our ministry. And Paul says, that attitude is terrible, but I'm glad they're preaching Jesus. John shows here in verse 13 that there's a connection between our fellowships. The children of your elect sister greet you. Churches that are in Christ are connected to each other, and if for some reason someone doesn't feel like First Baptist of Cutler Ridge is the church that suits them, is the church that they fit and fits them best, then they should, and I do, encourage them to find a church where that Fit does occur, a gospel-centered, Christ-preaching church. I wish everybody would be happy here, but that's not a realistic expectation. Some people like this genre or that genre of music. Some people like chairs or pews. Some people hate blue, whatever. There's a myriad of reasons people might be more or less comfortable here at our church. I love our church. I think we have a great church, obviously. But there are reasons why other people might feel more comfortable at one church or another. Here's my point. Can you grow in Christ at the church you're in? Some people leave us for other reasons. And there might be selfish reasons. They might be argumentative reasons. They might be whatever. My, my question is not whether or not everyone will like me. Not even my family likes me all the time. My question is, wherever you go, are you hearing the word of Christ and are you growing in your faith? I know we do that here. Amen? But if there is something that's pressing you one way or another, that's something that I want to keep in mind. There's certain ways to see this. For example, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, John says this. If anyone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, he's a liar. Because he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So in other words, church, how can we say we're being faithful Christians who love God and worship God, and then we like give everybody a hard time who isn't a part of our church, but who is genuinely in Christ? We have to build fellowship. We have to build camaraderie. We might be parts of a different church. But at the end of the day, I've got a sneaky suspicion that we're going to be seeing more people in glory than we think. Amen? I think we're going to go, you made it too? And he's going to go, "I, you made it? I didn't think I... It's Jesus. And praise God we're here. And and I wonder if we'll have sort of a retroactive thought that says something like, we should have had better camaraderie and unity when we were on the earth. We might be members of a different church, this one, that one, or the one over there. But in Christ, we must preach the gospel for our community, 
In Christ, we must preach the gospel for our country. In Christ, we must preach Christ for the world. When Jesus laughed in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he said, as you go, make disciples of, of all nations, teaching them what I taught you to observe. And baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's nothing in those verses about denominations. We must be cautious not to place our denominations before the word of God. We must be cautious not to place our convictions about our denominations before the commandments of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't important tenets that we hold to. I'm a Southern Baptist for a reason. Nevertheless, when push comes to shove, you are either in Christ or you are not. And that's what's important for us to receive here today. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, what? Love. To close, let me say this. Christianity is simple. We read, we spend time together in personal fellowship and intimacy, and we grow where we are. That's what we're doing here today. That's what we do each and every week. So I want to share with you a handful of ways how you can grow in these two points that we have shared today. Number one, attend worship faithfully. I know that sometimes you wake up after a horrible night and you feel terrible and you just can't make it to church. You watch online or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about resolving in your calendar, no matter what, to be at church. To attend worship, to hear the word, and to sing praises to God with God's people. Secondly, attending our midweek meetings. The midweek meetings are not like Sunday. The midweek meetings are different. There's teaching, there's lecturing, there's aspects where we're always learning, but it's conversational also. We chase down verses together. We get into conversations that are conversations you would not get into anywhere else. In addition to that, we've got things for the youth. We've got things for the kids. We do that because getting together halfway through the week keeps our faith in check. Amen? And Bible studies are amazing. I have always loved preaching. Preaching is such an incredible blessing and honor for me. But I love Bible studies. Bible studies are great because we get to approach things from a different angle and perspective. Thirdly, read your Bibles regularly. This is part of what it means to be a healthy Christian in the fellowship. Read your Bibles regularly. Remember, Christianity is a literate faith. Fourth, commit to membership at Cutler Ridge. That's another way that you can contribute. We have a new members class coming up. This is something for those of you who have been here and been a part of our church to attend. Find out if this church is a fit for you and if you are a fit for our church. And finally, serving in areas of ministry where God has gifted you and where you're needed. This is another important point. We've got a lot of areas of service where we're going to be calling on people to step up and to invest their gifts and their talents that God has given to them for the good of the body at large. We're going to need teachers, other volunteers serving in different areas and so forth. So as this conversation begins to unfold, keep your eyes open, keep your ears open, and perhaps more importantly, keep your heart open. Because our church will only be 
as healthy as its membership.